That's a hexameter. Wait, wait, that, <laughs> that was the point. I was going to take that point. No, right that one's mine. Oh, hey, microphone's on. Today on uh, Man uh, Radio, we're yeah. talking about lies that we let ourselves believe. Right. Yeah, we Not racked we, up some good ones. No, no, people. but other people sometimes do yeah. tend to bend the truth a little bit yeah. in ways that are self-serving so that they can continue to believe what they want to yeah, about I've themselves. Been to, I've been told that you're cheap. <laughs> I've been told that I'm frugal. <laughs> At least I choose to believe that oh. about myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes people say that uh, I've heard of careless drivers before. Yeah. I, I don't think it's careless necessarily. It's just that other drivers don't know how to drive. That's you know, right. The people around me. They're irresponsible. Are, they're the problem. You see that on the first snow usually too. A and lot the first of snow. It's like <laughs> yeah, they all the... come out. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. My Suburban has a cloaking device. Right. Even it... though the tires on my rig are bald, it's the <laughs> other guy's fault. It... They okay. should have known. Or how about you know, I'm not unemployed. I'm between jobs. <laughs> right. Right. I'm, I'm between. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jobs mm-hmm. for eight years. Uh, <laughs> I, honey, honey, I'm not ignoring you. <clears throat> no, what would you say? What did, <laughs> right, what did you say? I'm listening really now. Could you repeat that in a different way? Right. So now, here's it. one that you might hear sometimes even inside your church. I'm not responsible. I'm totally depraved. Welcome to Interman Radio, where we accomplish more than we thought we could through Christ's power working in us, regardless of what your pastor said last week. So let's drop the excuses, pick up our Bibles, and prepare to win. This week, we continue in our series, Mark, Lies We Allow Ourselves to Believe. And like all the lies that uh, we've talked about before, this one is particularly insidious. Ooh, you used the insidious word. The insidious word. word. We're going to hold out for later, but I had to drop it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In that it is is something that is couched in humility, and it's easy for us to believe, but it has a lot of... uh, it has some damaging consequences. Yeah, what we're going to talk about today, once you start to pull on the edge of it, you find out that the whole rug is attached. And so uh, we, we, want to, we want to be able to pull the curtain back on that and look at it for what it really is today. It's wreaking havoc in the church. And let's step back just a minute, Mark, for, uh, for a moment, because I want to go back to a time and talk about a personal uh, thing that happened. And this we, is, need, we need kind of a kind yeah. of a harp thing there, kind of a dream sequence, do we? so that we know that we're going back. Oh, okay. Go ahead. We can do that. Okay. There was a, a fellowship that uh, I, my family and I were involved in some time back that you're familiar with, and yeah. a, a group of people came together to start this work that we wanted something deeper. We wanted something more challenging. We wanted something that would better reflect what the scriptures talked about, and we were excited. I mean, there was Bible studies happening everywhere. The, the assembly grew from, from about two families in a living room to over 80 people within three years. Wow. There was uh, people yep. involved in each other's homes uh, daily, people helping each other, get people moving across the states just to come to be part of this. People sneaking away from their churches to come and visit our assembly because they had heard about it. But they would say, don't tell so-and-so I've been here, but I just wanted to witness this for myself. It was exciting. Yeah. Christians being, and then the teaching was deep and challenging, and we were really Really on fire, and and then all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but if we fast forward the tape about three years later, yep. you've got parents talking to their kids, trying to figure out what happened, and trying to explain to the kids what happened, and have their kids tell them something like this: "Dad, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it." Ouch! 
how did we go from everything's awesome and so great and praise the Lord to 13, 14, 15 year olds telling the mom and dad, I want nothing to do with God anymore. Uh-huh. And how we got from point A to point B was that there were things under the surface that we hadn't paid attention to. Maybe things that we even brought with us to that assembly that that undermined and they, it dest- it, they destroyed not just the assembly, but people's lives were really hung in the balance. A lot like a Trojan horse, Mark. Mm-hmm. During the, Gre- the Greek wars, and, and uh, there, there's a lot of it attributed to Greek mythology, but we do know that there were wars between the Greek cities. And so the story goes that, that the city of Troy was eventually undone because the Greeks had, had given the, the people of Troy this gift. Yeah, they, right. they rolled up this wooden horse as a supposed sacrifice to sacrifice to to uh, to Poseidon, I believe, as Troy had supposedly, as the story goes, a temple to Poseidon. Say, here's our gift to you. We're not fighting you anymore. We're helping you. Yeah, we do. You got us. You, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, there was some debate on whether or not they should roll this thing into the city, but they did. They rolled the Trojan <laughs> horse into the city, <laughs> as the story goes. Mm-hmm. And at, at night, they were inside the horse. There were these soldiers. And they came out at night and they opened up the city gates and allowed yeah. the army to come in yeah. and sack the city of Troy. <laughs> Compelling story. But there's a lot of parallels between that and what we're talking about this week. Yeah, there are. There are so many of those of those lies that are inside modern day churches that we let ourselves believe religious Trojan horses, as it were, that many congregations have not really thoroughly examined. They've just drugged them into their churches. They've drugged them into their teaching. They've drugged them into their uh, their common vernacular. Yeah. They've just, they've pulled them in and they've accepted them as though we have carried the battlefield. And they sound holy. They look holy. They seem deep. They seem like the right thing, but they're actually a Trojan horse. What is the Trojan horse? What is this thing that is so evil, so horrible, so deceptive, so insidious? Subtle, ins- Would you say insidious? Even insidious, Mark. <laughs> that would that would undermine Christianity itself. It is what? Well, it's this little dude with a pointy beard named John Calvin. Uh, Calvin. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're serious. Yeah, it is. It, it's John Calvin. You mean the guy that wrote books 500 years ago in Latin? Yeah, that's the one. That's that's the one. Institutes of the Christian religion. That's that. him. That's him. <laughs> so, so the great evil lurking under the surface, sowing seed of destruction, is the dark lord of the Reformation himself. <laughs> John Calvin. Yeah, that's the one. As as in Calvinism. Uh, okay, what gives? It is that insidious. Calvinism is, is a doctrine that, that modern-day churches have just brought in, but they didn't stop to think about it. It's just kind of a holdover from the Reformation, and they've accepted it, and they've brought it in with open arms, and they pulled it inside all of their city gates, but they never looked inside. Okay, time out, time out. What's so bad about Calvinism, and why should anybody care? Because as soon as you see this, the, the C word here, Calvinism, right? I could just see eyes rolling and people going, "Oh, great!" You know, <laughs> great lead up, guys. <laughs> so why should anybody care? Because Calvinism, at its core, is a teaching that advocates mankind's total dependence upon God, and that's a bad thing. Well, it sounds good. Yes. But but in practice it doesn't it doesn't play out well. In practice it boils down really it boils down to one kernel called total depravity. 
Hmm. I know that's one of those religious terms that we love to throw around at Total parties. Depravity. That's right. Are you partially depraved? Or no, totally, totally depraved. Okay, so what is total depravity? Okay, so total depravity in 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 a nutshell is the idea in this doctrine that man has inherited from his physical forefather Adam this fallen state that renders all of us as human beings totally and completely incapable of knowing good or wanting good or seeking good. We are broken from the very beginning, from the inside. We're twisted and bent, and nothing good can come out of that. We can't know God, want God, or choose God. That's how bad we are. We are totally depraved. All these pieces, broken and scattered, in mercy God. I see. So it's like original sin only to a higher degree. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's like the original yeah. sin is the is the uh, is the systematic application of this idea. It's how we explain total depravity. Okay. How are we total because you were born with the sin of Adam. So that's what's produced this doctrine, this idea of total depravity. Uh, but it doesn't end there. Okay. Total depravity is the if there's a if there's a kernel in, inside of this thing like the wart, you know, Everything else flows from that. And lots of times, if you ask in churches, well, do you guys believe in total depravity? They, well, first they want to know what that is. What? <laughs> what? Total what? <laughs> and secondly, they would say no. Right. Most cases. Right. They Most say, people, no, so, we don't believe that. So this, so the, the doctrine uh, that we're going to talk about has, has wormed its way into churches without people even realizing it? Oh, it's already there. They just don't call it by that name. If you ask most churches, are they Calvinists? They say, well, no, we're not Calvinists at all. Right. With the exception of a few Presbyterians, most of the evangelical world is going to say, well, no, we're not Calvinists. And and we'll get to why it's so dangerous in in a little bit here. But for right now, so so okay, talk me through it. So we got to, we're totally depraved. If you're so totally what? depraved, then the next logical step, you are incapable of good. So there's nothing you can do to merit or to earn, or ask for, or in any way distinguish yourself for the acceptance of God's grace. Okay, yes, so like in Romans 3, it says there's no one righteous, not even one. Right. Right. Is that a verse that they would use for that? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so... I I mean, it's it's perfectly suited to that, isn't it? There's none righteous, not even one, none who seeks for God, who does good. What they fail to, to examine about the Romans 3 passage is that is a collection out of the Old Testament that's being quoted in Romans chapter 3. It's from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 10, Psalm 36. Those four specifically all have this directly in the, con- in the context. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right. So we're already talking about people in those Psalms who have made the decision that they are fully rejecting that there even is a God. So Romans chapter 3, verse 10, which is a a verse that's foundational to this idea of everyone being totally depraved, is used because it says, look, there's no one righteous, not even one. But the verse that Romans 3.10 is quoting is actually either Psalm 14 or Psalm 53, or there's a couple other in Psalm 2. It'd be Psalm 10, Psalm 36, where the psalmist is saying, there's no one righteous, not even one, but the people that the psalmist 
psalmist is talking about are people who say there is no God. Yeah, he's already talking about people who've rejected the idea that God exists. So that's not everybody. No, it's not everybody. Okay. And it, this would be very similar to the description that Paul gives in Romans chapter 1 of a people who have rejected the idea of a creator and they've and they've uh, worshipped and served the creature instead. And a couple exceptions to that are Psalm 9 and Psalm 140, also quoted in Romans chapter 3. But they're talking about people who are direct enemies of God. So they've rejected the Lord. And that's not true of everyone. Okay, so these guys have rejected God. But that's, that's everyone, right? I mean, aren't we all just born into a state of rebellion? Haven't we inherited Adam's sin? Because we're born in sin, we're born in no. a state of rebellion? Like no. Ro- Romans chapter 5. Right? Romans chapter 5 does sound like that at first, uh, particularly in, like, let's take verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. If you just take the first half of these verses, it sounds just like that. Let's just pull the first halves off. In verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one. Or in verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted justi- or resulted condemnation to all men. Or in verse 19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Yeah, well, hello. Uh, it seems pretty uh, that's obvious. That's a poster for original sin. What happens is they didn't read the second half of the verse. He says in each of those cases, 17, or 16, 17, 18, and 19, there's a part B here. He says in uh, verse 17, for instance, if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In verse hmm. 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, yes. even so. And we want to really focus in right here. So then as through one transgression, so in the same way that one transgression has caused condemnation to result to all men, even so, that is in the same way, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Wait. Yeah. Wait. So so if we're going to read the rest of that passage just like you did, uh, then if a person's going to say, because of one man's sin, we're all condemned and we're all born into a state of rebellion. If you accept that. If we accept that, then we have to also accept that in the same way, yep. just as that is the case, even so, all men are now redeemed. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So That means... All, all men, men are saved. So if all men are in total depravity and rebellion just yep. by being born, right? then now all men are saved. Yep. If they didn't do anything to inherit Adam's sin, then they didn't do anything to inherit justification of life either. All men. All men. That's right. You can't have it both ways. Because it says in that passage, just as. Even so, through one act of righteousness. Verse 19 is the same. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so... Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. See, and they want to take the first half and say, well, that's a universal application of Adam's sin to all men. But they won't take the second half of the verse that says, even so, through one act of righteousness, justification goes to all men. Okay, so backing up a little bit here, we're talking about uh, Calvinism and, and the main underpinning of Calvinism, the kernel that ties it all together, yeah. really <laughs> is the idea that we are all totally depraved. In a, unable 
to choose God, to seek God, to do any of that. And uh, but the, in the one of the verses they would use is uh, Romans chapter three. Uh, there's no one righteous. Another one would be in Romans chapter five, where it talks about everyone being uh, born in sin because of Adam, in essence. Right. And what we just pointed out is is those passages are being taken out of context. They really are. They miss verse twelve, which is important. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It doesn't say death spread to all men because Adam sinned. Right. It says because they all sinned. So when you do what Adam did, you get what Adam got. Right. And the same is true with Jesus. When you do what Jesus did, you get what Jesus got. It's not all men that get saved. It's the ones who obey Christ. Even though the sacrifice is available to, to them all. all. Yes. First Peter or First John rather chapter 2 says that he's propitiation for all of our sins, not ours only, but those of the whole world. It's out there. The offer is there. But it's not, not everyone follows in the footsteps of Christ. So not everyone gets what Jesus got. We have all sinned, and therefore we all fall short of the glory of God. We followed Adam's example. Right. Well, that makes sense, though, because really we're t- what we're talking about is individual accountability. Yes. And that's a principle that is established in the Old Testament. Yep. Ezekiel chapter 18 talks about how every person is responsible for their own sins, particularly verse 20 and 21. Not the sins of their father, even their great, 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 great father. Right. Adam, <clears throat> the son is not accountable for the father's sin. But the best one, really, that deals with it most completely is Romans chapter 7. Mm. Paul strips away. There's no way to hide total depravity inside Romans chapter 7. Well, but Romans chapter 7 is used to justify all kinds of sin, though, is it not? The thing I don't want to do, I do. The thing I do want to do, I don't do. Is that what you're talking about? And it kind of sounds like total depravity, but let's check it out. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Is the life that he's talking about a physical life or spiritual life? Spiritual. Has to be spiritual. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be writing Romans 7. He'd be be dead. dead. Okay. Okay. So he says, when I was once alive, he's talking about I was spiritually alive. That is, I was in fellowship with God. Wait. But if he was born totally depraved and rebellion to God, he wouldn't have been able to ever be spiritually alive. There would never have been that point. Because total depravity and original sin hold that a person is broken, that they are condemned from the point of conception. Hmm. And Paul would never have had this opportunity to say, I was once alive apart from the law. Right. He's alive spiritually. He says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Again, that's spiritual death. But notice that the commandment came with Moses. Right. Which is so roughly 14 centuries before Paul shows up. So he lived before Moses. <laughs> right. No. Okay, okay. When yeah. he was exposed to the commandment. Exactly. Okay. The commandment had been there, but it wasn't applied to Paul until he reached a certain age where he recognized what was going on. I was once alive apart from the but when the commandment came, that is to him personally, sin became alive and I died. And the commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin-taking opportunity. Through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Notice that it was his own personal sin that brought about his own personal death. Mm. So when we're talking about, about I was once alive apart from the law, 
there's no way to hide total depravity and original sin inside that statement. Paul is categorical. He says, I was alive. Right. And my sin brought about my own personal death. You know what's interesting about that, Mark, is in that passage when Paul begins to talk about the things he didn't want to do, he did, the things he did want to do, he didn't do, he saw his law at work. So in that state where he died, he was still trying to do the right thing. Yes, he was. So if he were totally depraved, unable to see what's right, unable to seek God, he wouldn't have had that conflict. There'd be no desire in him to do the good. He would not, to be totally depraved is to be incapable of even wanting the good. Right. And we clearly see in the second half of chapter 7 a serious struggle inside Paul's mind of wanting to do the good and not being able to do it. Right. A struggle that the Calvinist denies. So if I'm not totally depraved, if I do have the ability to seek God, then how does God choose Who's going to be saved? Because because we're told that it's God's sovereign choice that he predestines some to be saved and some not, right? Right, and what has to be. See, if we accept total depravity, then we have to believe that God is the one making the decision who's saved and who's lost totally unilaterally. Right. So there's nothing I can do, so I can't make a choice to be saved. God has to do that for me. I, I can't even seek it. Nope. I can't even know. I mean, can't I don't even, want I, it. Can't nothing. So God has to make that choice. All on his own, apart from us. And so we couch that in terms that sound really great, like God's sovereign will. Right. Well, God That's, is sovereign. Yeah, and he does have a will. <laughs> yes, he yes. does. But does he choose winners? Because if we accept that premise, that God chooses winners... Well, we have to accept the reverse also, don't we? He chooses losers. He chooses the losers. All right. But, but, for, but some would say, yeah, but because, because everyone is cloaked under sin, everyone deserves punishment. Uh-huh. So God's actually being gracious by, gracious by choosing some to inherit life. And that sounds pretty good. Yeah. But let's see if it matches up with the scriptures. What does God want? Okay. So in Second Peter chapter 3, And let's take verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish before all to come to repentance. There's no way, no way that this jives with Calvin's doctrine of limited atonement. Which is some are saved and, and some aren't. Or that God chooses some, but he chooses others to be lost. If God's choosing, if God's sovereign will is being carried out without any input from mankind. God saves them all. And we know that because he desires all to be saved. All to be saved. The The only way that you could say he's not doing that is if maybe the sacrifice is insufficient... Which we know is not true. Right. His sacrifice is enough for all men to come to God. So there's plenty of grace to be had. Or he's not powerful enough to to accomplish it. Is his arm so short so as to not save? That's a great question here. Right. Of course God can do it. So if God can do it and God wants to do it, as it clearly states in the scriptures, he says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. God chooses them all. There's no one who would be lost under that, under that system. If mankind has no input, God saves them all. Now, that's so, insidious. So you say this is insidious, 
and we just marched through a bunch of, of, of points. Why is this insidious, and why should we care? Well, I guess if a person buys into Calvinism, right. what's, the, what's the repercussions of that? What's the problem? The, the problem is huge because if they buy into that total depravity, then they have to accept all the rest of Calvin's tenets. This does two major things. <clears throat> one for the human side and one for how we understand God. First off, <clears throat> from a human perspective, if, if, if we accept Calvinism and we're totally depraved, then there's nothing we can do to merit God's favor, which is Calvinism point two, unmerited favor. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if we can't do anything to merit God's grace, then the atonement that God gives has to be is limited because he saves some, but the scripture is clear that not all men will be saved. Right. So we have to agree that God chooses some, he chooses some winners, and he chooses some losers. <clears throat> if God's the one choosing, and I can't do anything to be a part of that process, then we have to believe that his grace is irresistible, right. which is the fourth tenet of Calvinism, is irresistible grace. And sometimes you'll hear this even in religious circles. I came to Jesus kicking and screaming. Exactly. Yeah, yeah right. God right. saved me. I didn't have any part in it. Yeah. Uh, that's Calvinism. See, right. it's, been, it's been pulled in, and that, that horse is already within the gates. If we accept that, that God chooses or uh, that God saves us, whether we want to be saved or not, then it only follows that we can't choose to be lost. If you can't choose to be saved, you can't choose to be lost eternal either. Eternal security. Yep. So Calvin called it perseverance of the saints. We call it eternal security. But you'll usually hear it in the, in the denominational world as once saved, always saved. That is classic Calvinism. Okay. But it's been given a modern moniker to, to unpackage it to a new generation. And the problem, okay, aside from the, the clear discrepancies in Scripture that we've kind of walked right. through. And by the way, we marched through this really fast. Really fast. And we hit the highlights, and we probably gave just enough information for the person to, to go out there and get themselves in real trouble. Right? <laughs> right. So, yes. so kind of like learning one move in karate. Yes. You know, and now you, you, I must start. Yeah. Yeah. You know how to wax on, wax off. <laughs> but but right. that's not going to help you, Daniel's son, when you're fighting uh, Cobra Kai. Anyway. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, so... In our next episode, we're going to get a little bit deeper. But for right now, Mark... Two things. Okay. Two things. One is, if we accept all those things, from mankind's perspective, it takes every ounce of personal accountability and responsibility away from mankind. Well, we don't see any results like that in the church, though, today, though, do we? I mean, we don't see people living life as if they're not accountable. Man, it's everywhere, isn't it? God wants you to come as you are and stay as you are. That may not be stated in just so many words, but it's pretty close. God wants you to come in. There's nothing you can do. Our churches have become support groups for sinners. Yeah. Because of Calvinism. That idea is very different than, say, the Protestant Reformation that would follow later in our own uh, um uh, in North America, very, very different. It takes all of mankind's accountability away, and it does something terrible to God. It creates the idea of God as this, this whimsical tyrant who chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost without any input or any justice. People will counter with Romans 9 and say, well, he's the potter. He can do what he wants. And that is true. God can do what he wants. But God cannot violate his own character of justice. And that he would be doing if he chooses winners and losers arbitrarily. It's not consistent with God's justice. And it makes God into a tyrant who is just choosing, it, it makes him into, into Rome's Caesar 
with thumbs up or thumbs this one I like this one he I I will take him he amuses me I will take that one and it it totally destroys the character of God in the minds of the people who hold to those tenets and that would have a huge impact on a person, the way we live life, if we believe God to be that way, yes, and have a huge impact on how we live life, if we believe that there is that we there is no way we can combat sin. There's no way that, or there's no way that we can even, there's no way that we can even pull ourselves out of God's hands if we wanted to. Nope. If there's no way we could lose our salvation, that would have an impact on how a person lives their Christian life. Yes, it would. Paul asked the question kind of rhetorically: Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? Calvinism's answer to that is unstated. In truth, it gives, a, it gives everyone a complete license to do anything they choose. But the Calvinists would not agree that that's the rational conclusion. But it's the one that Paul draws. If there's grace, and if there's no responsibility, then the fleshly man tends to draw the conclusion that, you know what, I can do anything I want to, and grace will increase. Next, uh, next time on Interman Radio, we go deep into Calvinism. Really deep. They're not going to buy that. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that sound compelling? Yeah. Like you would want to tune in next, yeah. next time. <laughs> next time we... What about the horse? What happens with the horse? Tell me about the horse. We skin the horse? No. We skin the horse. Next time we lead the horse to water. But, you, but, we, but can we make him think? Ooh. We... <laughs> They'll never buy that either. No. Next time on Interman Radio... If it walks like a horse and it, and it talks, talks like, like a, a horse, horse. It's, it's, it's mr s <laughs> uh, it's calvin it's um, we've been horsing around long enough we'll see you next time on, on interman, interman radio, radio.